In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet lifts up his eyes to the living God. And he sees the the God of the Bible. He sees God in his godness. He sees God in his immensity. He says, this is Isaiah 40, verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And so here we have the transcendent God, the eternal creator, Lord, who measures all the waters, all the oceanic depths in the hollow of his hand, marks off the heavens with the span of his hand, with a hand breadth, right? The expanding vast universe, puny and tiny, before this God's immensity, his infinity, right? He encloses all the dust of the earth in a measure. He weighs the mountains, he says, on the scales. Who has measured, Isaiah says, or directed the spirit of the Lord? Right? This God is independent. He receives no counsel or no input from anyone. What theologians call he is ase, he lives from himself. He is who he is. No one shows him counsel. He derives knowledge from no one. He knows all things from consulting his own being. No one teaches him justice. Everything else is contingent, the whole cosmos. But he is the transcendent, incomparable God. And Isaiah, seeing this God, then says this, Behold, the nations are a drop from a bucket. All the nations of all the millennia, in the light of the godness of the biblical God, look like a drop from the bucket. And they are accounted, Isaiah says, as dust on the scales. You know, you put something that you want to weigh on a scale, an object, you weigh it, you take the object off, And then you just check to see if there's any dust. (sighs) Like that, on your scale. That's all the nations. All their cultures. All their food. All their travel. All their engineering. All their art. All their science. All their roiling political turmoil of all the centuries. That is what they look like. When someone sees God in his glory. They are counted as a drop in the bucket. But that's not quite low enough. Isaiah says, they're like dust on the scales. And this God takes up all the coastlands, all the far-flung islands, he says, like dust, like in his fingers, like fine dust. But Isaiah goes lower. He says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They're dropping the bucket, dust on the scales, nothing. But that's not low enough. He says they are accounted by him as less than nothing. It's as if he cannot pour enough holy contempt on the nations and their pretensions. Once he sees the infinite, eternal, immense God, they are less than nothing, and he goes even further and says they are emptiness. The same word from Genesis 1-1, where the earth was empty and void. To whom will you liken this God, Isaiah says? 
He sits above the circle of the earth, and all the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a, like a tent to dwell in. And Isaiah continues, continues, and he says this about this God. He brings princes to nothing. He's nullifying them. This is just what Paul says in the New Testament. He says, the rulers of this age are coming to nothing. They're being emptied out. He brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the age as emptiness, as inconsequential voids. And then he says, scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely their stem takes root in the earth, he blows on them. They wither, the tempest carries them away like stubble. I often ask myself, especially over the last 110 days or so during the pandemic, you know, I'll, I'll read an article, someone will send me an article, I'll get a link, there'll be an email, there'll be some text. I ask myself this when I'm reading these pieces. What work, what work is the biblical vision of the biblical God doing in this particular piece right here? And the answer is often nothing. The piece would work just fine if we had some sort of 18th century deist moral governor of the universe. This is the frame that Isaiah sees the nations and all their roiling political turmoil in because he has a thick, living, pulsating, vivid conception of the God before whose face heaven and earth are going to flee away. And without this, the framework for looking at things is fundamentally skewed. Out of the runes of these nations, leveled as nothing and less than nothing and emptiness, out of those runes, you can, in fact, build a Christian political theology. Right? This is not the only word, but this is a framing word, a decisive word. You can then set up or construct how should Christians then engage in the social political realm. And if you were to do that after this, in light of this, you would end up with something like the book of 1 Peter. Right? A book for exiles. A book for those whom Peter tells us have an inheritance reserved or kept for them in heaven. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, for God himself is the centerpiece of our inheritance. An inheritance which is not threatened by the ebbs and flows of cultural tides. A glorious, full, replete inheritance that cannot be diminished. Right? This is why Jesus tells us, lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth, because your treasure in heaven can't be eaten away by moths or, or destroyed by rust or thieves can't break in there and steal. Peter writes to exiles with that kind of inheritance, with this kind of God, with this kind of perspective. And we are in a section of the book where two such people, we are reading Peter's inspired social, political, cultural rules of engagement. That's what's going on in 1 Peter 2 and 3. He spoke last week of being subject to every human creature, to human institutions, to emperors, and to governors. In fact, he speaks of submission or being subject to Five times in about 30 verses here. And we saw last week that this submission implies no inferiority. Right? Rather, it was the sign of truly free people. 
It is Jesus paying the temple tax to temple authorities whom he has personally, verbally condemned as irredeemably corrupt and even murderous to authorities that he knows are seeking to kill him. The one who said he would tear down and burn that very temple. The one who did in fact do that in 70 AD and rebuild the temple around his crucified body, crucified at their hands. To them, as a free man, Jesus gives the tax. It's the outward manifestation of deep interior liberation. And so Peter continues today with two examples of costly suffering submission. Two suffering servants. And so we'll make two points. Slaves, verses 18 through 21, and Christ in verses 22 through 25. There's an outline there in your bulletin. Slaves in Christ. So first, slaves. A few preliminary remarks, because context is crucial here. For for slaves, Peter uses the word for household servants, which means there were probably a good number of such people in the churches to which he's writing. In addition, slavery, of course, in the Greco-Roman world is not the same as later race-based slavery in the Americas. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Revelation 18, condemn any kind of kidnapping or trafficking in human souls. In fact, Genesis 1 condemns it because all men and women are made in the image of God. These Christian slaves, to whom Peter writes, would have become slaves either through war or perhaps through poverty, selling themselves into servitude for security, possibly through birth. They could labor. They could gain their freedom. They could manage estates even, some of them. But most of them were very poor. And while they were slaves, they lacked freedom and they lacked basic rights. And they were essentially treated as property. And as we'll see, these slaves were subject to corporal punishment, to beatings for their offenses in the Greco-Roman world. Aristotle felt that since they were property, it was not possible to mistreat them. So it's important to remember a couple things here. The first one is this. Peter is writing as a pastor to Christians in this lowly state. These are Christian slaves he's talking to. He's not discoursing on Greco-Roman slavery in the abstract. It's not a philosophical treatise on slavery. He's writing to his flock. And secondly, right, there's no legal remedy or recourse for these slaves. Peter's trying to minimize their exposure to persecution to maximize their witness for Christ, their witness for the gospel. And thirdly, then, this means that Peter is not approving of the institution of even Greco-Roman slavery. He's just dealing with it as a reality. right? This is what pastors do. You, there's a reality on the ground. You have to deal with it. In a perfect world, maybe things would be different. right? He's dealing with it much the way you would deal with polygamy if you were evangelizing a culture that practiced polygamy widely. 
it would be useless just to pontificate against it, and you couldn't legally abolish it. You'd have to start from there and work. So what the gospel does then is it transforms people, right? It transforms human beings to live sometimes in very, very, very difficult situations, but the gospel unleashes forces that ultimately can heal and leaven corrupt institutions. But the gospel works indirectly that way. So with that, to the text, to the text. Verse 18, slaves, again, household servants, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Now, even addressing slaves here is a revolutionary thing. It's a conferral of dignity, right? Peter speaks to them as people with agency. They are to submit themselves. It's an action that they take. Right? They're not told, shut up and obey. They're told, place yourself under. Right? Not because the master is intrinsically superior. Of course not. The gospel, the creation account, rejects that notion. Again, all persons bear the image of God and are fundamentally equal. But they're told to do so out of reverent fear of God. So again, submission is not weakness. It's not spineless conformity. And it's not just their political fate even. It's an act of piety toward God. And this is a tough bit of teaching, right? It is to be given not only to good and considerate masters, Right? Going along with good and considerate leaders or authorities requires no particular nobility. No, Peter says, submission is also due to those who are harsh and unreasonable. That, that's when our hearts are revealed. That's when we find out who we are. Now, this text is not directly about employer-employee relations, but it applies to that, right? Who hasn't had a harsh or an unreasonable boss. Submission, in that case, Peter says, is especially commendable. It shows grace, he says. It's a pleasing aroma to our Lord. Servants bear up because they are, Peter says, I love this phrase, conscious of God. They have an ingrained or habitual God-consciousness, an interior life which refers everything to God and sees everything in the light of the triune God. In other words, they think of God the way Isaiah thinks of God. This God-consciousness is the interior freedom which enables one to transform suffering. And it's the secret to all nonviolent resistance. So the apostle continues here, verse 20. If you receive a beating for doing wrong, there's no virtue in that. Again, let me just make a side point here. It needs to be said. Peter's not accepting the situation, right? Or, or putting a stamp of approval on it, per se. He's not doing that. He's advising Christians who, for whatever reason, have to live in it. Right, Paul will say, get your freedom if you can get it. 
Jesus says in one place in the Gospels, you know, if you're persecuted in one town, flee to the other town. Right? We're not masochists. We do not have to submit ourselves to violence, and the text should not be read that way. I want to be very clear about this. In Ephesians, Paul forbids masters from even threatening, much less beating slaves. Household servants. In any event, what is commendable, what is commendable in the text, is suffering for doing good. And here, the apostle is just summarizing the teaching of his Lord from the Sermon on the Mount, which we heard in the gospel lesson. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt for them. Why does this have no play in our political theory? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Peter's echoing this right here in this passage. And he says in verse 21, to this, to this, you were called. To what? To this unjust suffering and to bearing up under it, to submitting yourself to it. This is a vocation, Peter says to these servants. This is a calling. This is not resignation to fate. It's a call. I suspect we're much more likely to think the exact opposite. That our calling is to not tolerate unjust suffering. And this is a calling, Peter says, not for some incidental reason, but for something at the very heart of the Christian life. It's a calling because Christ suffered for you. And so here we have the towering instance of a suffering servant, a slave of all, bearing, submitting himself to unjust suffering of the most horrifying kind. Right? To an age constantly obsessed with its rights, with what one is due, with endless litigating, the cross can only seem like an absurdity. And it's a passage like this that helps remind us of this. It seems like a kind of slave mentality. That's what Nietzsche thought it was. Maybe this is a form of masochism. But it's certainly beneath the dignity of free people and their rights. Now, there's a lot to be said you know, about the atoning death of Christ. But here, Peter says something, which is an oft-overlooked lesson. He says this, namely, that Jesus' suffering, atoning death is an example to be followed. That's really shocking when you think about it. Not that we can atone for our own sins. Of course not. Nothing like that is in view. Peter simply means that the cross is a moral school. It's a lesson, an example. Indeed, it's the central lesson in Peter's political science. So it turns out that not only does the doctrine 
of the infinite, immense, eternal God do very little work in a lot of our reflection. It turns out the doctrine of the atoning Christ, suffering as an example for us to follow, also does very little work. It's an astonishing thing to read piece after piece after piece after piece and ask yourself, does the vision of Isaiah's God frame this piece? Does the role of this suffering servant inform the ethics that we're being asked to imitate? The word that Peter uses for example here, Christ is an example for you to follow, means a sketch or like a pattern. So it's very important to see what he's doing. The cross is never merely out there. Thank God Jesus did that for us, which of course we do, but it's never merely that. The cross is the shape of our existence. Right? It, the cruciformity is the way of life for the church. We are, Peter says, to follow in his steps, trace his steps out all the way to Calvary, into participation in his unjust suffering as the servant slave of all. And to that, suffering of Christ then will now turn. So if Christ's example is a sketch or a pattern, a sort of connect the dots thing that we are to walk in, here's what it looks like. And here, Peter is drawing on Isaiah 53, which was our Old Testament lesson. It says this, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Perfect innocence, right? Flawless obedience to his father. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Nonviolent, holy, silent resistance to the betrayal of Judas, to the false accusations of the priests, to the grotesque judicial injustice of Pilate and his court, to the bloodthirsty cries of the mob, to the flogging and the spitting and the beatings and the nailings, nonviolent, holy, silent resistance. Again, he is the suffering slave of Isaiah 53, which tells us he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. What? He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. He did not open his mouth. Seems like sheepish, sheepish, silent, suffer. Doesn't seem to resonate. If that's the standard, a lot of our chatter can seem absurd. Right? Seem like a catastrophe of misplaced passion. It's very important to get this. What is Peter doing here? He is not just speaking of the atonement. This is not a text for which we can say, well, that was unique to Jesus. He had a messianic mission. He had to provide atonement as the God-man. Peter is putting this little piece of teaching in the middle of his 
section on public political ethics, on our relation to the state and to emperors and to governors and to masters and in marriage and in the church. And this example, this set of footsteps, this pattern of this nonviolent, non-retaliating Christ, this is at the center. So, Jesus also was not a victim, right? He was fulfilling a vocation. The text says he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He who was unjustly given over gave himself up to the justice of the judge of the world, forsaking personal retaliation, forsaking vengeance knowing that justice was in the hands of his heavenly father, knowing that vindication for him will come with resurrection, will come with the eschaton, for him as for us, as for all the martyrs. What a demanding bit of teaching this is for these early Christian powerless slaves. And yet, and yet, in the suffering slave we have a subjection that is so radical that it signals the end of oppression. We are drawn right into the irony of the cross here. It is a subjection so radical that it signals the end of oppression and the end of dominating lordship and the end of abuse of authority and the end of bondage and slavery in all of its forms. This alone is real resistance. Don't settle for a counterfeit. Right For this one is not merely an example. Of course he is that. We just saw. Peter says he's an example. But his suffering is utterly unique. It does what no human suffering can do. And that's why Peter goes on to say, he bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Right there we have unjust suffering at its most grotesque and its most glorious. That's what we find in the cross. Unjust suffering at its most vile and its most glorious. Not only suffering as innocent, which he was, but suffering which bears the guilt of others that we might live. So the spectacle then of the cross, the God of Isaiah, the infinite eternal God, hanging on that cross. And our union, our cruciformity with him, that's the place where mysteriously human freedom is birthed. That's the wellspring of liberty. By his wounds, Peter continues, you have been healed. It's a familiar line, again, it's from Isaiah 53, but it's poignant here. Don't miss this. It's poignant because Peter is writing to beaten slaves. To battered servants about another beaten servant. Right? Because of who this slave is, these wounds are different. These wounds, try to catch the shock of this as if you've never heard it. As if you're hearing it for the first time. It is the wounds of a beaten slave which are the source of your healing. What an absurd religion this is. I mean, how could it possibly ever get off the ground? In any event, the beaten slave becomes the great physician by being wounded. 
by being wounded. And you need, we need this scarred, wounded healer because the text says we were like sheep going astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls, right? The one who was both a slaughtered sheep and the sovereign shepherd. If you want healing, you need to return to this good shepherd. He will do no wrong to your soul. He's called the overseer, meaning the bishop, the one who watches out for your soul. This one is the ultimate authority that these household slaves are under. And this is who we are under. This is the one who we are reverently fearing when we submit to unreasonable authorities. So what has happened here? Without justifying the institution whatsoever, Peter, by means of the gospel, has transformed the status of those under unjust rule, calling servants to imitate the suffering servants. Now, in preparing this sermon, I read a story that I want to close with, the story of a Korean pastor. His name is Yang Wan Sun. In 1948, in South Korea, a band of communists took over his town, and they executed his two older sons, Matthew and John. The boys died calling on their persecutors to believe the gospel. Later in the town, a young man named Chai Sun, no relationship, Chai Sun, was identified as the one who actually fired the shots. And he was ordered to be executed. Pastor Sun, again, the father of the dead boys, requested for the charges to be dropped. And that Chai Sun be released into his custody for adoption. The judge was hesitant to believe this. The dead boys had a 13-year-old sister named Rachel who went to court and testified in support of her father's request. The court then released Chai Sun, who became the son of this pastor and a follower of Jesus Christ. Pastor Sun said, I thank God that he is giving me the love to seek to convert and to adopt as my son the enemy who killed my dear boys. That is what cruciformity in the face of unjust suffering can look like. That is following in the footsteps of the suffering servant. That is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That is giving up on the politics of vengeance and perpetual rights assertion. That is dying to sin and living to justice. That is healing flowing from the woundedness of Christ and the wounds of this pastor and his family. Right? This is a pastor reflecting the great shepherd who was once a slaughtered sheep. Are you, are you suffering? Are you suffering perhaps unreasonably or unjustly? Are you wounded? Peter won't coddle us here, but but he does give us very effective medicine. He says you've been left an example, a public example, a political example. 
He says there are footsteps. There's a sketch. There's a pattern. Walk in them. The shepherd, the overseer of your souls, has gone before you as a beaten slave. Let his wounds be the source of your consolation, your comfort, and your healing. Amen.